Our sermon text this morning is a little bit longer, so we're just going to jump right in. If you're able, out of respect for God's word, please rise as I read Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. This is the inspired word of God. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And he, they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with the disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came again and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and for practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Lord God, thank you for your word. Speak to us, we pray today. Give us indeed eyes to see and ears to hear, for you are the only one who can. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Well, as I began to read today's text, I hope if you've been with us these last uh, months that you notice that it seems a little familiar, right? Because it was just a few weeks ago that we looked at chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, and in that passage we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Now today comes the feeding of the 4,000, and there are a great number of similarities between these two passages, are there not? There's the, the large crowd, the compassion of Jesus, the, the hunger of the people, the small number of 
loaves and fish, the direction from Jesus to sit, the miraculous multiplication of the food, the crowd eating and being filled, the leftovers being collected so that there are more in the end than there were in the beginning. And the disciples finally departing in a boat. There are so many similarities, in fact, that some critical scholars suggest that what Mark is doing here is really just a retelling of the same event. They say, surely this is just the same story, kind of told a little differently. Uh, some of the details are different, but, but what, what causes them to think this, even with the differences of the details, is the fact that surely the disciples cannot be this dense, right? I mean, how could they possibly be so dense as this? The problem with their line of thinking is this. It ignores the clear message that we see throughout the Gospels, and specifically throughout Mark to this point, that indeed the disciples are this dense. And before we laugh too hard, the reality is we are too, right? We are too. I like how Jack Miller used to put it. Cheer up, church. You're worse off than you think. True, true words. So we see here a picture of ourselves in many senses, uh, in all of our doubts, in all of our sinful forgetfulness. But we see good news as well. We see it in the progression of the text and how things go from one to another. And, and even as it might seem counterintuitive to that progression, I believe we see in this passage a word of good news. First, we see here a sign from Jesus. Right? Remember, signs are not just magic tricks. They're not just things to show how cool Jesus is and how he can do things to garner attention to himself. They they are signs. They, they sign. And what does a sign do? It points to something, right? One of my favorite signs is as we're driving down to Oxford, Ohio, uh, where Jack went and Caroline still goes to college at Miami of Ohio. As we get to about Toledo and head past there, there's the sign on the highway that says, Tampa, 1,103 miles, right? As if, oh, we know you're all headed to Tampa if you're on this road. 1,100 miles, but it points us to Tampa. If we wanted to go to Tampa, we know we're on the right road. It's pointing us in that direction. Well, what do the miracles of Jesus, what do the signs of Jesus point us to? But to the coming of his kingdom. It's inbreaking into our world and the fact that indeed he is the king. So we see this sign in chapter 8, this feeding of 4,000. It's just like the feeding of the 5,000, but right off the bat, I want to point out one similarity that is a controlling similarity to this whole passage, and it is always important for us to remember. Right, The crowd gathers in verse 1. They'd had nothing to eat. He calls the disciples to him, and in verse 2, he says, I have compassion on the crowd. But he has compassion on the crowd. This is, this is the very heart of Jesus. He is one who is compassionate. 
It is one of the foremost marks of Jesus. We see it throughout the scriptures. It's in the feeding of the 5,000 before this. We see it again today now in the feeding of the 4,000. We see it in Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 7, we read that, that he went to a town called Nain, and, and, and as he drew near to the gate, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. He, of course, worked to solve her situation as well. Even in what are perhaps his two best-known parables, what do we find? Right? I, I'd say they're probably the two best-known, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 10, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. This man was on the road, and when he saw him, what did he do? He had compassion. The prodigal son goes off to this faraway place, Gets in all kinds of trouble. When he comes back, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh, compassion is all throughout. We talk about compassion in our context as being something that's found in our hearts. If we look in the, the Greek language of that day, it actually is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more gritty than that. Uh, the, the word there, the Greek word, uh, not that you care that much, is splanknizomai, but it comes from a, a Greek. The first part of that comes from the word splankno, which means the uh, inner organs. Kind of, you know, sometimes it's translated the bowels, right? And that's the idea is, is this compassion that Jesus feels for us, this, this compassion that he has is something from his innermost parts, it's deep within, and perhaps you've felt it before where you've had a compassion for someone, a love for someone, and you can feel it, we might say, in the pit of our stomach. We can actually feel it. It's something tangible, and that is the kind of compassion that Jesus has for us, and we see that it's a compassion that moves him to physically do something. He actually feeds the masses in their hunger, and his disciples, at verse 4, are wondering how this is going to happen. They say, how can one feed these people with, with bread when, when we're in this desolate place? How indeed, right? How indeed. Just imagine how frustrating this must have been for Jesus, right? We've, we've been through this, and not that long ago. But I remember, I remember when we were raising our kids, and they were really young, and sometimes you'd like show them something or tell them something, and then like three minutes later, they had forgotten it. Right? And you have to show them or tell them again and again and again and how, how frustrating that was. But that's little kids and you understand that that's how it is with little kids. These are grown men that Jesus is dealing with. And they're so quick to forget what they've seen. So quick to forget what he shared with them. So quick to forget what he has revealed to them. And that is indeed frustrating. And so he asks them, how many loaves do you have? They say, seven. 
Right? We'll find later in the passage that there's 4,000 people. 4,000 people, seven loaves. It sounds daunting at first, admittedly. But if we remember that just recently, it was 5,000 people and only five loaves, right? He's, he's got more loaves and fewer people. The math works out. It's a whole lot easier than what he's already accomplished. And yet they are scratching their heads. They don't know what he's going to do. The problem is they have a sinful forgetfulness. I call it a sinful forgetfulness because not all forgetfulness is sinful, right? There are things we forget. It just happens. I find the older I get, the more things I forget. Maybe there's just more stuff in my head and it pushes things out. I don't know. But uh, that's probably not a medical explanation or anything there. But uh, uh, I do find I forget things. But, but I'm not just talking about general forgetting. I'm talking about forgetting those things that have been committed to us to remember that we, we should remember that we, we should base our lives on, the things that our lives should center around. And maybe it's not a forgetting that they happen. Maybe it's not a forgetting of the data, but a, a failure to apply that data to your lives, to have your thinking shaped by that data, by that information. So just like before, Jesus kind of does the same things. He takes the seven loaves. He gives thanks. He breaks them. He gives them to the disciples to set before the people. It's that same pattern that we saw. Remember, we mentioned how it's also the same pattern that we see in communion, right? He, he took, he gave thanks, he broke, and he gave. And then they had the fish, and they include them as well in verses 7 and 8. And they ate and were satisfied. And that's why Jesus came ultimately, isn't it? He came to satisfy us. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying he came to satisfy the desires and longings that we have. He came to satisfy the desires and longings that we ought to have. He came to be the fulfillment of all we hope and dream for, of all that we, we should long for, all that, all that we should want he is the answer to it. And that's why you say in Luke 6, 21, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Or in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The reality is, though, we can be so focused on our physical blessings, so focused on our physical bread, as it were, that we can lose sight of these spiritual blessings that God is pouring out upon us. We can, we can push them off to the side. We can forget about them altogether. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. It is all right to be concerned about our physical things. We prayed before, just as Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. And yet, the concern comes that sometimes our physical nourishment, our physical reception of gifts crowds out in our heart the spiritual nourishment and the spiritual gifts that God is looking to give. We see today's text, a, a picture of how the, the blessings of God extend to us, even as Gentiles, right? As those who aren't part of Israel uh, from a genealogical standpoint, as it were, but have been adopted in, right? It's, it's a, in that this took place in Gentile territory. Where the feeding of the 5,000 was 
in Jewish territory. Now we are in Gentile territory. And beyond that, we see that whereas there were 12 baskets full of bread picked up afterwards, right? One for each of the 12 disciples, each of the 12 disciples representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we see in the Gentile territory, there are seven, and many commentators suggest that this is a reflection of the seven Gentile nations, right? Mentioned in Deuteronomy 7, we have the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, right? So, so we see all of this working together. We see God doing this work through Christ Jesus. And, and there were these 4,000 people there and Jesus sends them away. And you'd like to think at this point, something's going to click, right? The disciples are like, I get it now, Jesus. I see what you're doing. I, I, I was missing it before, but now I'm with you. I'm on the same page. But alas, this does not happen. The disciples are so slow to learn. And so are we. We forget what he has done. We forget how he has blessed us in our lives. We forget about the provision that he has given us, the trials that he has seen us through, the, the difficulties that he has walked through with us, even through the valley of the shadow of death. We forget how he has provided for us and carried us to this very place. We forget about the times that we have wandered away and he brought us back. We forget about his great faithfulness in the past. We fail to see that he will be faithful in the future. We forget especially about the cross where Jesus paid the ultimate price, dying for our sins, shedding his blood, his body broken, so that we might have fellowship with God. And if he would pay the ultimate price, we must know there is no lesser price that he would not pay. Let us remember that if we remember nothing else. Well, there's another group that was almost comically slow to learn, the Pharisees, right? And they make a demand on Jesus in this passage. He gets in the boat with the disciples. They go to Dalmanutha. Uh, that's back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, right? Um, an interesting note in Matthew's telling of this, Matthew 15, 39, says that they went to the region of Magadan, which is sometimes called Magdala. And uh, so this region where Dalmanutha, which is kind of a mystery place, but we assume it's near Magadan or Magdala uh, because of Matthew's telling of this. Magdala is uh, where Mary Magdalene would have been from, right? So, so this is the territory that she would have come from. Just uh, a little side note there. Uh, the Pharisees come and they begin to argue with Jesus. They are seeking to test him. They're essentially saying to him, "If Jesus, we, we don't believe you. We don't think you are who you say we are, you are. We, we don't think you can do what you say you can do. But, but if you'll show us a sign, if you'll show us one of your fancy magic tricks, well, maybe then we'll believe you. Of course, Jesus isn't interested in being tested. We recall throughout the Gospel of Mark so far, his displays of signs have been mostly to those who have come in faith, right? You know, we, we say sometimes you, you got you to gotta see it to believe it, right? It's kind of a phrase we have. Jesus is essentially saying the other. You got to believe it to see it. He's saying you have to believe, you have to trust, you have to have faith in order to see the signs. Otherwise, I'm not interested because all you're asking for is a test. Remember what Jesus said to Satan in, in his temptation in the wilderness. 
Thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. He's not interested in enduring tests. I, I remember when I was a kid, maybe, gosh, five, six years old, I have this vivid thought of, of having learned about Jesus, learning how he had died on the cross, and having learned how he was, as he hung on the cross, mocked by those who were there, and how they hurled insults at him, and how they said to him, if you are who you say you are, why don't you come down from the cross? And I can remember thinking, yeah, why, why didn't he just come down from the cross? And, and being explained to me, well, he, he had to die for your sins and for mine. He couldn't come down from the cross. I mean, he could have, but, but if he had, we'd still be lost in our sin. And I remember thinking, but, but, but couldn't he have just like come down from the cross, shown them, say, hey, everybody, look, right? And then got back up on the cross and died for us, right? Just to show that he could do it. Because then surely everybody would believe. Of course they wouldn't. Of course they wouldn't, right? Because the, their lack of belief wasn't due to a lack of information, right? They they, they could have seen a thousand signs, a thousand miracles. They still would have never believed. That's where the Pharisees were. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. He was exasperated with them. His patience was up. He says, why do they demand a sign? Surely there will be none for this generation. He left, got in the boat, and went to the other side. We see a warning from Jesus. Verse 14, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. If you look at that, go back and read that sentence again with me. Wait. They had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf in the boat. Well, which is it, Mark? Had they forgotten to bring bread? Or, or, you know, they had brought a little bit of bread with them and they only had one, it was only one loaf. No, he says they had forgotten to bring bread. They hadn't brought any bread with them. But there was one loaf in the boat. The, the, the word stands behind, the, you know, you could really literally say they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one bread in the boat. Right, the word loaf is actually the word bread there. And so which is it? Had they forgotten to bring the bread? Or was there one bread in the boat? And some commentators suggest, and I'm inclined to believe with the, the, what, what they're saying is right, that indeed both are right. They had forgotten to bring bread altogether. And... In the way we would normally think of bread, perhaps, there was no bread there. But there was one bread in the boat. Even Christ Jesus, the very bread of life, he was in the boat. He is the one who nourishes us. He is the one who feeds us. He is the one who is the bread of life. And he goes about teaching the disciples right here. He, he says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. But we, we had leaven in our unison scripture reading. Sam talked about how, how it, it gets in there and it spreads throughout the whole thing. That's the work of leaven, right? Is, is, is it's going to, to kind of silently and invisibly work its way throughout the whole of the loaf so that it rises throughout. 
A little leaven will leaven the whole lump, as we read. Even though it might not be seen, even though it might not be heard, it, it can all of a sudden, when, when we aren't looking, we notice, wow, it, it spread throughout the whole thing. It's transformed the whole loaf of bread. And that's what Jesus is saying happens. Right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, because if even a little bit of that leaven gets into you, the church, it can spread like wildfire. What was the leaven of the Pharisees and of heaven and of uh, Herod? Well, it was wrong teaching and hypocrisy, and more specifically, a hard-hearted unbelief. And so what Jesus is saying is here, you don't want to give any ground. You don't want to have even a little bit of that hard-hearted unbelief here. But we see that they do have a little bit here. He's saying you are in danger. You need to be aware here because they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. There's this double failure going on. They've, they've completely forgotten what Jesus has done in the past, but now they're completely misunderstanding what he's saying in the present. And Jesus, aware of this, says, why are you discussing the fact that we have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Right? Remember, Back in chapter 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, what happened afterwards? They got done. Jesus sent them out in the boat. He goes to pray, and then he sees them having trouble on the sea at night, and he comes walking across this waters to them, and they see him, and we read that they were terrified. I guess so. Immediately he spoke to them, said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them. The wind ceased. They were utterly astounded. Why? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And here again, we see since then, he's shown them all these signs, the healing of many at Gennesaret, the healing of the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman in Tyre and Sidon in that region, the healing of the deaf-mute in the region of the Decapolis, the feeding now of the 4,000, and yet somehow they still do not grasp who Jesus is. How is this possible? It's because their hearts are hardened. Or as Jesus says in verse 18, having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear. He asks the rhetorical question, do you not remember? Right? And they remember. They say, I, you know, we remember, yeah, when he asked them the question about how many loaves do we get back, well, it was 12 in the one and seven in the other. We remember, but again, this is the data. They remember the data, but they don't apply it to their hearts. They don't apply it to their lives. They don't apply it to their selves. And in that sense, they fail to remember. And he says to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus chastised them, not because they'd forgotten to bring bread, but because they had failed to trust in the one who is the bread Remember at the beginning, I, I told you how there's this progression in this passage that makes it a passage of good news that leads us to a hopeful place. This doesn't seem very hopeful, does it? Right? We started off with a sign, and then we had the bad guys came in, and then we said the good guys aren't any better than the bad guys. The end, right? That's not very hopeful. We still have one verse left here at the end that I want to look at a little more carefully. He said to them, do you not yet understand? Right? 
He doesn't say, do you not understand? It's do you not yet understand? There's a suggestion that the time is coming when they will. The, the placement of this story within Mark's gospel actually suggests that as well. Jesus criticizes them for what here? For having ears that do not hear and eyes that do not see. What did Jesus do in Mark 7? He healed the deaf man. And you know what we're going to see next week he does right after this? He heals a blind man. And so here we see the disciples between the hearing of a deaf man and the healing of a blind man as those who have deaf ears and blind eyes. And if Jesus can heal the deaf man, and if Jesus can heal the blind man, then there is still hope for the disciples. And brothers and sisters, that means there's still hope for you and me. There's still hope for us because our hope is not found in our record of righteousness. It is not found in the supposed holiness with which we have lived our lives. It is not found in anything that we have done and that's good because if it were, we would be utterly lost and hopeless. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Because Jesus came for sinners. And not just the kind of sins we think of, the sins that we listed in our unison scripture reading, but sins like those who sinfully forget what they've seen Jesus do. Those who sinfully doubt what he can or will do for them in the future. So let us know and believe and trust that Jesus truly is compassionate. He is. And that he can truly do all things. He can. And if these two things are true, then we need fear nothing. We simply need to put our trust in him who is our light, our strength, and our song. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and God, we give you thanks that you indeed are the one in whom we stand. That Christ Jesus, our, our foundation, our rock, our cornerstone, our righteousness our holiness, our bridegroom, and our Lord. Help us to trust, to believe, to remember, and in light of those memories, to live faithful lives going forward. For we ask it in his name and for his sake.